Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, Alberta declares a state of public health emergency. Let me be blunt. If these measures do not have meaningful impact, and that depends on how each one of us respond, we will be forced to take even more drastic measures to protect the healthcare system later in December. Will Canadians be toward the back of the line when a COVID-19 vaccine is available? One of the things to remember is Canada no longer has any domestic production capacity for vaccines. Um, we uh, used to have it uh, decades ago, but um, we no longer have it. Uh, countries like the United States, Germany and the UK uh, do have domestic pharmaceutical facilities, which is why um, they're obviously going to prioritize helping their citizens first. And looking ahead to Monday's fiscal update. We will be presenting the 2020 fall economic statement. Our plan will continue to support Canadians through the pandemic and ensure that the post-COVID economy is robust, inclusive and sustainable. It's Wednesday, November 25th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by longtime political writer and broadcaster Dan Legere. Good morning, Dan. Uh, good morning, Mark. So let's talk about uh, Alberta first. Uh, they have declared a state of public health emergency. The numbers have been climbing there. Alberta now has the highest number of active cases in the country. And it is, of course, the place where the provincial government tried to maintain some level of personal freedom and choice during this pandemic and during the two waves so far. Unlike other provinces, Alberta resisted crackdowns, and now they've had to go completely in the other direction. Uh, does this, what does this say, I guess, about the approach that Alberta has taken so far? Uh, well, the approach didn't work. Um, you know, this is this is uh, serious business. This pandemic, and anyone who's watching the situation in the United States, where there's been a, uh, shall we say, a robust debate over uh, the balance of, of uh, power between personal freedoms and uh, protecting the community and, and families, and uh, I think personal freedoms are killing millions of people uh, in the U.S. They're certainly infecting millions, and. Uh, it's it's uh, really dangerous, and this is the type of U.S. style Republican approach that Kenny seems to favor, and uh, it was almost predictable that it would, you know, end up in a mass uh, infection rate that's now um, outpacing the rest of the country. I mean, Ontario's had to take measures. Quebec certainly. The Maritimes now our our bubble is is bursting at the seams, and new measures came in here. So uh, this is what's taking place around the world. And, um, you know, Jason Kenney uh, has got to get his head out of the sand and realize that's what's going on. And if people are mad and write nasty letters to the editor, so be it, because this is a public health matter, not a political matter. Let's talk about the arrival of vaccines, because there's been a lot of discussion about that over the last couple of days, uh, whether Canada will be behind other countries in receiving the vaccine because we're not producing it within our country. Uh, the health minister has been defending the government's approach and saying that Canadians will be vaccinated uh, when the vaccine becomes available. Uh, what do you think about this discussion and the rollout of the vaccine whenever that time arrives? Well, you know, Mark, I'm old enough to remember back in the day when the Mulroney government uh, allowed Connaught Labs, uh, which was really at that time the leading Canadian uh, facility for this type of, uh, you know, uh, drug production or, or vaccine production. And uh, Connaught 
you know, it was under public control for a long time. It was privatized under Mulroney. Now it's owned by foreign interests. And, uh, and Canada, as a result, partly of that, has been left without the capacity to, uh, to uh, produce its own vaccines. I really wasn't aware of that until this has all come up. And the, you know, the prime minister has made several rather sunny uh, predictions uh, or statements saying, well, we're Canada's in line to buy this many million doses and that. Uh, but um, it turns out we can't manufacture this stuff here. And, and with, there may be quite a wait. I, I think this is a huge disappointment for people that are hoping the vaccine will come along and remedy these problems. Um, and I think it's a heck of a wake up call to the Canadian government and our science and, and uh, medicine communities, uh, research communities, uh, to get on the ball on this. Pandemics are not over. A global economy, global travel means we're going to, the global population is going to be exposed to these in the future. And uh, this is time, I think, for the Canadian government to, uh, to focus up on this, work with the provinces and the research community, and, uh, and make sure this doesn't happen again, because this is going to cost people's lives. And I don't think very many Canadians were really aware of the gap, um, the capability gap between what we need and what's available right now. Yeah, and the Prime Minister did acknowledge yesterday that other countries may get the vaccine first, uh, but the the government is adamant that Canadians will have access to it. So uh, we'll see what develops on that front as that discussion and debate continues. Let's talk about China for a moment, Dan. Uh, There was a lot of discussion yesterday about Canada's approach to China. There was debate between the Foreign Affairs Minister, uh, François-Philippe Champagne, and the Conservative critic Michael Chong uh, at a committee yesterday. And this continues to be a point of differentiation between the Conservatives and the Liberals. And uh, I think we've seen the language from the Prime Minister evolve a little bit over the last uh, few weeks and months. Uh, But... Uh, there still has not been significant progress that anyone can see on releasing the two Canadians detained in China, and a lot of people are asking whether a different approach is necessary. Right. Well, a different approach is necessary, and, I mean, this dispute is not over two Canadians. It's not over Meng Wanzhou, really, either. Uh, This is about um, China exerting its economic and political power around the world, including in Canada. I mean, the Australians uh, got bit, you know, they, they had a prime minister who went and learned Chinese so he could uh, improve relationships with uh, with uh, Beijing, and it's blown up in, in their faces in Australia. So uh, this is happening in Canada. Uh, I do agree uh, with you that the uh, government's position, the prime minister's position, does seem to be evolving. Um, you know, it has to be somewhere between these silly and empty claims by the conservatives that you can just, you know, bully back at China. And it can't be a craven uh, sort of capitulation to the demands of the Chinese either. But I think the whole world has to reconfigure its approach to China. China is challenging the world. And, um, you know, with the change of administration in the United States from the chaos of, of what was there under the Trump years to something approaching rational diplomacy again under Biden, I mean, I think there will be opportunities, perhaps, for Canada and other like-minded countries and allies of the United States to uh, work together to bring about um, some some collaring, shall we say, of, of China's ambitions. Because uh, it's clear now, I think, to everybody that if, if the West doesn't push back 
we're going to get pushed around, and and that's that's what's going on right now. So uh, the Canadian government does have to get tougher with China, but so does the whole world, and and this is the time for uh, uh, action among allied and and uh, like-minded countries. All right. Finally, Dan, let's turn to Monday's anticipated fiscal update from Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland. Um, uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on the context for this fiscal update. We haven't had a budget this year, of course. Uh, there's, uh, It's been very much uh, kind of a live, fluid situation with government finances this year because of the pandemic and the requirement to invest money and, and, and support Canadians in so many different ways. Uh, so what's the relevance of this update? How accurate a snapshot can we get and what news might arise from it? Well, I, I think it's going to be a huge bummer of a day, put it that way, when, you know, people like most people uh, are concerned about government spending and, and, uh, and that it doesn't get utterly out of control. Uh, but it's still an emergency right across the country right now, and Ottawa has got the firepower to uh, to deal with it, and it's going to have to spend money. And I think there's preliminary estimates <clears throat> that could be up to a, over a trillion dollars eventually of, of spending, and, uh, you know, but it's required. Uh, Ottawa can't stand idly by and let the pandemic just crush everything, so it has to fight back. And money is is one of the things, uh, one of the tools in its uh, toolbox. Uh, but you know, we're we're running massive deficits. These are numbers that would have just been utterly unthinkable one year ago from from now, Mark. And uh, so uh, we're in a new environment. It's a new situation, and it's a tremendous challenge to um, fiscal planners in Ottawa. That's for sure. And Christia Freeland, I think, is has got a management issue of massive proportions here. Um, and, you know, but this, uh, Ottawa still has to send signals out there that it's going to support the economy and do what it can to stave off the worst effects of, of the pandemic uh, going forward. So uh, it's going to be grim. Uh, it's going to have to stand, I guess, in, in place of a budget for now. But, um, you know, these, these things are legal. Ottawa has the tools to, uh, to get to work, and that's what it's just going to have to keep doing, scary numbers or not. Yeah, and very quickly, Dan, I, I guess a, a question that has persisted throughout the year among fiscal conservatives and other observers is, is there a limit to how much the government can spend in on the pandemic, um, even if morally there's an obligation to do so? Is there a financial limit? And so far, we haven't seen that, have we? No, and uh, these are kind of theoretical things. I mean, the Canadian government or the Canadian economy is a, quite a robust machine when it's working right, and it's a priority of the government to restore the machine. Um, and, uh, you know, if you set some sort of a limit, I think then that sets up one of these political games, Mark, that we've seen over and over, that, well, you said this was the limit, but now you're going over the limit, or you, you said you're going to spend this much, but you haven't spent enough. To, you know, to install some magic number out there, I think, would just uh, end up uh, tying one hand to the government behind its back. Uh, magic numbers don't work. This is an open-ended and fluid situation, and Ottawa is just going to have to spend what it's going to have to spend, and we're going to have to pick up the pieces later as best we can. All right, Dan, great to have your insights on all of this today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for the call, Mark. That's Dan Legere, longtime political writer and broadcaster. They also don't want any scrutiny of this grand reset the Prime Minister is now talking about, this idea that he's going to renovate Canadian society. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. 
In the National Post, Tasha Carradine calls for a great reset the conservatives can love. Carradine writes, Governments around the world are broke. There will be no funds to sustain current levels of science, let alone basic income or national pharmacare. The time is ripe for a great reset to a smaller state. And while conservatives may not hold the levers of power in Ottawa, they do in six provinces where they could make a big difference. If Canada resets the right way, we can become a stronger, more resilient, and responsive society. In the Globe and Mail, Fahad Razak and Arthur Slutsky argue Canada should be a global leader in COVID-19 treatments. They write, The scientific talent is already here. Canadians were the co-creators of the concept of large, simple, and highly impactful trials. With only 0.5% of the world's population, we are ranked third globally for producing groundbreaking trials. Such trials would be incredibly valuable to Canadians if conducted here, improving our health, bolstering our universities and research hospitals, and strengthening our reputation in the global competition for resources and talent. In the Toronto Star, Joe Cressy considers what we need to get through current lockdowns and prevent more. Cressy writes, One area of immediate impact is guaranteeing paid sick leave for everyone. Right now, many people are facing an impossible decision. Either go to work and risk contracting COVID or stay home and lose your job. No one should have to make that choice. We have a responsibility to help people get through this. And all three levels of government must work together to use this time to scale up the necessary public health systems to ensure this doesn't happen again. It's already time to prevent a third wave. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister will attend the Liberal Caucus meeting and question period. And Health Minister Patty Haidu and the Minister for Women, Mariam Monsef, will announce funding to support three initiatives aimed at preventing family violence and supporting survivors. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, November 25th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.